From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Emily Tomlin. And I'm Michael Mikowski. I'm not trying to turn students into political scientists. I'm trying to turn them into intelligent consumers. And this meant that I could both join an extraordinary political science department filled with exceptional scholars. One of the most gratifying things is to have students come up at the end of a class and say, I used to think politics was boring. This, 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 this is 1050 Bascom. Claire Malone is a senior political writer for 538, a news analysis website that covers primarily politics and sports, among other things. Claire's writing has also appeared in The New York Times, The New Yorker, Vice, The American Prospect, The Daily Beast, and Slate. She is also a staple voice on 538's political podcast. Claire, welcome to Madison, and thank you for being on 1050 Bascom. Of course. Thanks for having me, you guys. Thank you for coming. Yeah. It's great to have you here. I was I was terribly late for this because I got I get really confused in Madison. Like I immediately <laughs> head to like the three buildings I've already been to. Um which was not where this podcast was. <laughs> is this your first time in Madison? It is. Yes, I'm very charmed by it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um I've been told I've have, I have a good friend who went here and he gave me a really long list of things to do and I've only been to like one of them. But today oh, no. I think today I'm going to go Try to sit on the terrace, which everyone oh, has yes. told me I'm supposed oh, to do. Oh yeah, that's and a requirement. Stare, stare at the lake. It's right? a shame. It's not like I know. The nicest day it was for like that. a night, like that's nice okay. week last week. That's okay. You I'll, missed it. I'll like I'll, I'll stare out into the rain like a like a Scottish <laughs> yeah. fisherman. Or something. Good. Claire, where are you from? I was born in uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. So, uh, but now I do not live there. Sadly, <laughs> um, no. I live in I live in New York City, which is where Five Thirty Eight is based these days. Okay. So, what was your journey like from Cleveland to New York? Yeah, I should state off that just because I don't live in Cleveland doesn't mean I don't love it. And I, if if you have any Midwestern Cleveland listeners, I just wanna I wanna say that mm-hmm. I ended up uh, going to college on the East Coast. I went to to Georgetown for undergrad, so I was in D.C. Um, did journalism in college. I worked for Georgetown. Had two newspapers. One was like the newspapery newspaper, and the other was the Georgetown Voice, the weekly news magazine. And I worked for that one because it had like a a feature well, right? So it had every week, we only came out weekly and it had like 2,500 word feature wells and I really liked that. It had a good culture section. Like it was kind of the, it was the it was the paper that broke off in 1969 from the Hoya in, in the other paper in protest of the Vietnam War. Oh. So it was like- We have a similar cool. situation yeah. here. Yeah. yeah, we threw better parties and it was just, it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> so I did, you know, I did that in college and I ended up being the editor in chief my senior year of the paper. But then I graduated in 2009, which was the, which was the middle of the crash, and I had been an English major. Um, and I was very, I was very worried about my employment prospects. Mm-hmm. So I ended up taking a job, kind of a weird first job after college. I worked for two years in the Middle East. I worked at Georgetown had a, a campus of their School of Foreign Service in Doha, Qatar, along mm. with like five other American universities. Wow, like Cornell yeah. was out there, and Northwestern, and the Doha schools were kind of they were trying to recruit locals. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So they hired people from the main campus at Georgetown to be kind of like um, we were TAs, we were writing tutors, we kind of ran like a student affairs department. I like co- I was the women's athletic director. Whoa! <laughs> nice. But it was but they were kind of trying to build. You know, it was a really interesting student body because pretty much everyone is a first generation college student. It was a largely commuter school because it's a pretty conservative society. So mm-hmm. a lot of people live at home, particularly the women. Um, and of a lot of people, English was their you know second language. So it was an English as a foreign mm-hmm. language mm-hmm. student body. So it was kind of like an interesting yeah. doing writing, tutoring, and kind of catching people up, particularly their freshman year, to just kind okay. of like a certain college level. But then I wanted to move back to America. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to live in D.C. because that's where all my friends were. 
um, and I lived at home in Cleveland for like six months and worked for a weird, weird job and then <laughs> decided, okay, I'm going to get a temp job in D.C. and started mm-hmm. kind of applying um, to magazines like all over, mostly D.C. and New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a few magazines at that time that were still kind of um, hiring people in sort of assistant editor, editorial assistant roles. And I got a job there at a, at a small magazine called The American Prospect, which you guys have probably never heard of. It's like uh, if you've ever heard of the New Republic or mm. oh yeah yeah or the Atlantic, it's kind of that like it was that ilk of small like progressive magazine, and they would hide like you know they did the big stories, but mm-hmm. they also had kind of like political cartoons and everything like that. Oh, cool! So that was fun. I worked a couple different jobs there. So I worked there for a couple years. Um, to be honest, I didn't love DC as an adult. Yeah. So why? Why? Um. I think, well, I think being a journalist in D.C. can be a very, it's not like a fun mixing of your social and professional lives. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Like, ever, yeah. it's, it's kind of, I bet, if do they call D.C. like ugly Hollywood or Hollywood for ugly people? It's the idea that, like, it's a one industry town and everyone's kind of, yeah, everyone's kind of, like, in competition. And yeah. it's, uh, yeah. So I wanted to move to New York. And so I, you know, heard of a job that was opening up at the New Yorker, kind of through the grapevine, and I got got a job uh, as a fact checker there. Oh, cool! Yeah, so I was there for a couple of years, um, which is a really great experience. Kind of like a, um, I always say, like it's like getting a master's in journalism, and it really, really mm-hmm. cool. Um, and I was freelancing a little on the side, doing you know, doing writing on my own. And then when the 2016 election cycle kind of popped up, I had a friend who who is actually now my editor at, at 538. Oh. And he said, um, well, we have this, you know, 538 had kind of gotten criticism for, so Nate, the guy who started it, mm-hmm. as you introduced, um, had gotten started actually, like he worked for, I'm going to blank on the name, Baseball Prospectus, right? He had he had started from like this sort right. of statsy environment. And that was a bit of the ethos of the site. And it had gotten, it had gotten a lot of criticism for... I think not having enough traditional reporting. So they were kind of looking to hire someone who, you know, wasn't a stats person per se, but could, but was willing to kind of blend the traditional reporting and the stats stuff for the 2016 election. Cause I think they knew they'd, they'd broken off from the New York times in 2014 and they Mm -hmm. knew that the next couple of years were kind of going to be a growth period. So my friend Chad emailed me and said, uh, you should apply for this. And the job posting said that you had to have, have you had to have covered a presidential election. And I distinctly mm. remember my email back, which was, unless I blacked out and covered a presidential election, <laughs> I'm not very qualified for this. But it's a good, I applied anyway at his urging. So I think it's a good lesson to always um, go beyond what, you, <laughs> what yeah. you think you're qualified for. Um, and I think I just kind of, you know, I, I jived with the people there. Um, it's, you know, it's a... It's a kind of cool environment because if you listen if you listen to our podcast, the cool thing about I think the workplace culture there mm-hmm. is even though Nate is most certainly my boss, you know, he he's a person who like not only lets you argue with him, right? It's like that's the workplace culture, right? Yeah. Kind of trying to be, you know, you know, pushing pushing on arguments and trying to be counterintuitive and all that stuff. So that's kind of the the long form version uh-huh. of how I ended up covering um, what ended up being a very crazy, you know, 2016 mm-hmm. election and kind oh, yeah. of topsy turvy. And- mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about 538. And you mentioned it briefly that it's kind of a really data driven. Mm-hmm. I want to know kind of what you mean by data driven news and how does 538 use data differently than other media sources? Mm-hmm. 
That's a good question. So for us, I mean, I'm just going to speak to the politics side of things sure. because I'm, I'm out of my depth when it comes to the sports. <laughs> um, but actually sports and politics, are they, they lend themselves quite well to, to numbers. So um, I think we, I think I'll, I'll pat ourselves in the back and say that I think we have, um, we have educated people in political, in the political sphere about how to um, read polls smartly and how to um, deal with polls when we're when we're balancing, you know, people's on the ground sentiments with let's get a broader view of the country or a particularly important state, um, and sort of the the baseline for us about how to use data in politics starts with polls. So uh, rule number one is never base a story or frankly your opinion about a candidate or a race off of a single poll. Um, so what we do is we um, take all of the available public polls and we'll average them together and we'll try to present you with um, a better, because polls are sort of, um, they have margins of error, right? Mm -hmm. There are, they have different sample sizes, some of them, different pollsters uh, can tend to weight things differently. Um, and so we basically say a good rule of thumb is look at the average of polls of a race rather than just a single one. Um, and I think that that's something that's sort of trickling down into um into the the political the political media writ large, um, but when we you know I think we use it differently. Like, and I think my writing is probably uses data differently in the sense that we don't think that you should be just a shoe leather reporter or just a polling stats person, right? Mm -hmm. Using polls is a, just another reporting tool, right? It's another way to if I go to South Carolina or Indiana or whatever, and I talk to a bunch of people at an event, I'm getting their sense of things. I'm kind of putting the human story onto maybe poll numbers or trends that I'm starting to see emerge. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes demographics and, and the inclinations of certain groups can really drive stories and coverage. So for instance, in Wisconsin, a couple of the really big trends that we looked at and, we're, and we have written tons of stories about because of the polling data that we have or just the data in general, because we also do a lot of, we use um, something called the American Community Survey, um, which gives us kind of like a fuller look at the U.S. population, lots of different data sources that we use. But in Wisconsin in particular, um, the the way that white voters without a college education have acted politically in the past few years has been something that's been really interesting to see. They flipped from voting Democratic to voting Republican, and it's had a huge impact, obviously, on elections. Wisconsin mm -hmm. was the state that determined the election, right? It was... Yeah. You know, it was the it was a state that pushed Trump over the line. So we find it really, really helpful to go back and look at historical elections and say, what can the what can the actions of people in the past in these certain demographic groups tell us about the potential for the future? And who should we be talking to? Where should we be focusing? Um, and given a country that's frankly as big as the U.S. and these in these elections, like it, it really helps to know, like, well, you know, actually, Waukesha is a pretty important place for us to maybe pay attention is it yeah. Yeah, yeah there you go so it's it's yeah so waukesha is like a has taken on a lot of national importance in part because we know from you know from the data well those those let's say let's generalize and say a lot of the white college educated republicans in waukesha county they stayed home and uh, and that was part of the reason why scott walker might have lost right the last in in 2018 what are they gonna? What effect are they gonna have on Donald Trump's election prospects mm -hmm. in the next year? How do they? How do those people feel about impeachment? So it kind of lets us hone in on really specific demographic groups because there's so much stuff floating around in the air that you do sometimes need to 
me, Claire Malone, with I have some, I live in New York City and I'm a woman and maybe I have some biases that might tilt me towards one explanation or another. But maybe the data tells me something mm-hmm. different. And I think it's important to, to have that and, and ground yourself in yeah. your reporting. I like that it makes data accessible for people that don't wouldn't otherwise look at it. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, we try to do in our stories, like I'm not, I don't think I'm a particularly, I don't think graphs necessarily help me mm-hmm. process things. I like, I, I need to read the words, but there are so many different kinds of thinkers, you know, like in elementary school, your teacher would always say, are you a visual learner? Are you a tactile learner? Whatever it is. And in our stories, I think we do go to great lengths to try to have a good story, a good narrative, but also to have visualizations, charts and graphs that are really beautiful, that kind of, that give you a good sense of like, okay, if I didn't really get that from that paragraph of numbers, what is this chart telling me? And that's, that also, I think the age of social media and Twitter and even Instagram, I guess, you can, you know, plop up a chart on Twitter and it can have a really big effect. It kind Mm -hmm. of crystallizes something for a person. I definitely see like the infographics and like other like visuals for me, like make something that doesn't make sense, make so much sense. And that's the goal is to make everyone a smarter consumer of news. Yeah. And one way 538 is also translating this information is you have a new podcast, the political podcast, which you are kind of a staple voice on. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that got its start? What's yeah. it been like working yeah. with that? Sure. It's the it's the 538 Politics Podcast. Actually, we've been around since 2016, although we used to be okay. called something different. We I think we were called the the 538 Elections Podcast. Really big name mm. change. <laughs> um, so we started it... I remember being hired and, and them telling me my first week of work, by the way, we're doing a podcast. <laughs> um, uh, I think it just started as something to, in the early primaries, um, you know, we would we would be in Iowa or New Hampshire. And it was just a way for everyone to kind of um, casually talk about the things that we talk about on, on, you know, in Slack, our internal messaging service, or just like when you, you know, walk by someone's office door about, Here's the things that are, um, you know, maybe we're not going to write them in a piece because we don't have the fully um, fleshed out data yet. But like, let's talk, let's give like our informed hypotheses about what's going on and and what are the effects, like, why is Iowa important? Why is New Hampshire important? Mm -hmm. And trying to give people a sense of like, not just that it's the tradition of tradition of these things, but there's a reason for this and there's a history behind them. Um, So yeah, so we've been doing it since 2016, basically. Um... And I'd, I'd like to think it's a um, – I don't want people to be – I actually think it's a good way into data journalism. I think, like, we've all, we all have known each other for a really long time. We all like each other. Mm-hmm. So I think it's kind of like a nice, chatty, um, accessible way to get, yeah. like, a I think a pretty down-the-middle, let's-look-at-the-facts uh, view on American politics. And, and um, we try as much as possible. We know that politics is very um, – it, it's a it can be a trying thing for a lot of Americans no matter what what side of the aisle you're on it's it's a it's kind of a a tempest right mm-hmm. now on on all Definitely. sides so we try to give some perspective about what's going on when we try to sort of do it in you know not in sort of like an outragey histrionic way it's a it's a data podcast at the end of the day and we're all mm-hmm. reporters yeah um so that's that's kind of the podcast you question Every, really cool. everyone listening to this podcast should this is our <laughs> yeah. crossover episode yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i like really like it i like love the fact that it's like it's not like writing for me like sometimes writing is really difficult but i love like talking about things sure. and like working with people to like 
like I guess not come to a conclusion, but like make myself better understand like yeah. an issue or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's good to have the outside voices too. Do you right? have like a preference? Do you like like writing stories over podcasting or like are like kind of two completely different things? Well, they're different, but I, I think I try to approach them the same way. I mean, mm-hmm. I think I probably like writing better in the sense of I think my thoughts are more cohesive and coherent yes, and like, you know, drum tight. Um, but I think I, re- I approach the stories I write and the podcast probably in the mode of like explanatory journalism. Mm-hmm. I'm a reporter, right? I'm not an opinionator, but, um, you know, I have a particular worldview that mm-hmm. like I've been, I've, you know, gone and talked to people. And so I, I want to help people who, you know, have, have jobs, <laughs> right. And who, who are not spending all their time, like talking to people around the country, um, hopefully we're, we're providing a good explanation of trends that are happening. And so, you know, information is power. It's, it's, yeah. it's not good to be in, in your bubble, no matter what. Right. Um, and you can go lots of different places for, for bubble talk. Um, <laughs> so, so I think we all think of it as kind of explanatory journalism and, you know, we're doing it when you're doing it, uh, verbally in a, in a conversational way and people can just pop it into their earbuds on their subway commute or their drive or whatever, um, it's it's hopefully just another way of to go back to this again, getting people to think in a more sophisticated way about politics and news, but hopefully make it digestible because that's really important to me is making things fun at times, but also just thought provoking and and the written part, you know, about stories about people, not just about numbers, because yeah, you know, numbers can be a little bit cold fish. We all yeah, and we all like daunting sometimes. Yeah, they can be daunting, and we but we all relate to. Or we are all more drawn into people, stories yeah. about people, and that's mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. that's why that's why movies are a thing. <laughs> yeah, I want to ask you too about we were talking about polling, and 2016 I think showed this, and 538 also had the experience of polls kind of being incorrect, or there was the assumption that Clinton was going to win. A lot of people said that, and based that off polls, mm-hmm. and I want to know: has there been any changes in 538 about the way you've been doing polling, and how do you get people to trust polls again? after something like that happens? It's a great question. And I'll kick it off by saying we 538 doesn't really actually do any polling, but we do do the collection of those polls. Okay. And so we have this thing called our model. And what the model is, is it's all those polls from all publicly available polls, basically, go into this model. Mm-hmm. And Nate, the guy who created the model, does a bunch of calculation stuff that I don't really understand, but which take into, a, into account... Things like the way that congressional races in certain places have gone gone, and, um, you know, kind of factors in things like that and tries to put out a probabilistic number that tells you um, uh, so-and-so has a two-in-seven chance of winning the election. Now, I'm going to give you a long answer because it's a complicated question for 2016. Yeah. Our model, when you clicked on the model page gave you a percentage. It said it would say something like, uh, this is not the real number, but like Hillary Clinton has a 75% chance of winning the election. And I think people took that kind of, I think probabilities are actually hard for people to grasp, grasp sometimes, mm-hmm. get, going back to like people think differently. And so they kind of read the 75% in the wrong way. So, so what we tried to do starting with the midterm election is literally do, here's this congressional race in Wisconsin. And uh, Republicans have a three in five chance of winning the election. Democrats have a two in five chance, right? So mm-hmm. to actually like write out the yeah the yeah. probability. Don't forget about the other half. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now I don't want to. I don't 
know for sure how we're going to present the model in 2020, mm -hmm. but I would guess that it's going to be more like that to make it to make people more aware that we are saying, yes, it is probable based on these numbers that Republicans have a better chance of winning this congressional district, but Democrats still have a two in five chance and that's two chances out of five, not not terrible, right? Yeah. So we're trying to make people think through what that probability actually means. Okay, but let's go to the poll stuff because that's kind of interesting. Polling as a general rule is going through a bit of a rough time right now. So like if you guys got a call to yourself from, from a number you didn't know from like California or New York, you probably wouldn't pick it up, right? No. no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that is bad for pollsters because not as many people have landlines anymore. A lot of people don't pick up unknown numbers. And so it's much more difficult to get people to pick up a call and agree to take a poll, um, and especially to get young people. Because when pollsters are doing like a good a good poll, they have uh, lots of different demographics. They have old people, they have young people, they have white people, they have black people, all over. And it's pretty expensive to run a, po a poll these days. Um, you know, news organizations typically did them, and they can run upwards of you know a hundred thousand dollars, mm. things like that. They're very expensive. So, so there's that problem with polling. And and as a solution, pollsters are trying to develop internet polls. Um, so uh, there are emerging pollsters called like SurveyMonkey. Uh, YouGov, those are places that try to do internet polls, but those are still relatively new. Okay, so we've got polling in a state of flux. We've got 538, maybe not, <laughs> maybe not presenting our probabilities in a way that was digestible for everyone. Okay, mm -hmm. but then also we have Donald Trump. Okay, and Donald Trump had. Do you guys know what the the term earned media means? I don't. It's no. a random. Okay. So you know how Trump was on TV all the time during yeah. 2016? Yeah. And mm -hmm. cable networks, anytime he had a speech, would just stay on him for like an hour? Sure. Well, that gave him free advertising. So when a person, when a presidential candidate, the reason why they're, they're raising gobs and gobs of money is because it costs a lot of money to run TV ads in, you know, all of the important states and on, uh, on the internet, on, you know, on cable, all this stuff. So Trump was actually... He was, you know, penetrating markets, media markets all over the United States. He was on TV. Everyone, everyone was seeing him. And also, everyone already knew who Donald Trump was, right? Right. And so the fact that he was running for president got people really excited. And he basically got a lot of people who had been disengaged from politics excited. And pollsters missed some of those people because pollsters, when they run a poll, when they call you and you don't answer, they are calling people who are in what they call the universe of likely voters. So people who have voted in the last couple of elections. Well, a lot of people who voted for Trump hadn't voted in a while. And so there was also a problem of like polls did miss some of those people. But also polls weren't as bad as people thought they were. Like um, polls have those margins of error that I'm mm -hmm. talking about. Some polls, I mean, you know, Trump edging out Clinton by a couple points, that could still be within the margin of error of a poll. But once it's kind of win versus loss, kind of who, you know, people, that's you, understandably people aren't saying like, well, it was within the margin of error. Yep. So, yes. so it was a very, I think it was a complicated problem and we'll see how 2020 goes. I think that a lot of, I think the silver lining of, the election catching a lot of people by surprise is that media organizations are probably going to try to do a better job of explaining probabilities, explaining that um, the electoral college versus the popular vote 
means that unexpected things can happen. I think mm-hmm. it's probably really likely that if Trump wins the election, he could lose the popular vote again, but win in the Electoral College. So the Electoral College is not an intuitive system. And, <laughs> and so I think it's, that's another thing that, that you know, we're try, we try to explain to, um, to, to people who are kind of tuning in to politics because it's very important to their lives, but they don't read about it you know, all year long. So right. yeah. that's that's a good, a good question and a, and a complicated one. Yeah, right. complicated. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't just one thing. It, was it wasn't like just so many factors. The bad metaphor, the scary metaphor is when an airplane crashes, it crashes because lots of things go wrong. And the same thing, I think it kind of applies to the 2016 election. It was such a surprise to people because lots of different things, lots of different factors yeah. um, played in. Yeah. yeah. I think it's interesting that you bring up to sort of this group of people that maybe Trump brought out who haven't been voting in a while. And I think the media talks a lot about that demographic a lot, these people who haven't voted. Um, and something you've, you've also started a column called The Political Confessional, yeah, which I think maybe kind of almost gives a voice to some of these opinions and some mm-hmm. of these people. What's that all that about? Yeah, so Political Confessional is a interview column that I run. And the idea that started it was there is certainly, I think, in internet culture and probably American culture in general, there are certainly, it's just, I think it's a changing time for our culture and the way we talk about politics. And we talked about bubbles earlier, right? Mm-hmm. There are certain norms and values that, that uh, juniors and seniors in college in Madison, Wisconsin probably have, and everyone, everyone kind of has those norms and values. And if you voice something that is oppositional to those, people might kind of look at you askance. And I think mm-hmm. that happens everywhere. And the thought kind of came about because my editor and I were talking about the things that people, you know, say to you off the record or say, I would never say this on on Twitter, but, and then they go on and they give you this sort of interesting (laughs) thought about the current culture or life or whatever. Um, And so we said, let's try to convey via interview the fact that people have really idiosyncratic ideas about American life and American culture and their world and they don't always necessarily fall within like what a democratic politician would say or what a republican politician yeah. would say. And so we created like a submission form where you could basically write into us and say like we want your name and your age and your uh where you live and what race you are and like what's your what's your most con- what's this political view that you don't feel comfortable sharing with your group of friends and why? Uh, and I should state here that I um, am not doing interviews with people who express like I believe in race science. Like mm. I'm not, I'm not, yeah. I'm not futzing around with that. Um, but we've gotten some really interesting people writing in. So I think the first one I did was um, a woman who wrote in and said she thought it was unethical to have children. And so we mm. had this really long. And what I try to do is I think of it. One, I think they're all really interesting conversations. And I think of it as like a, okay, why don't you, I want you to be like open with me, but I'm going to ask you questions that kind of like push on that, right? So it turned out that she wanted, she didn't want children because she thinks it's, it's, it's bad for the environment, that people should be conscientious of that. So part of our conversation was about like, I think what a lot of people, younger people in particular feel, which is like, there's a really crazy climate crisis and like, what should we all be doing en masse to, to try to, to curb that? But then there was also this personal side of it, which was like, well, I have bipolar disorder and I don't, and sort of a lot of people in my family and I don't want to pass it on. So like, okay. so, so the idea that like there's the personal and then there's the, the more broad political thing that can influence an opinion. Someone else had another popular recent one was um, a man who said that we should 
break the United States up into a bunch of different countries based on regions. So like Wisconsin, Michigan, and Ohio would be their own region because they share uh, similar economies and culture and people. And then like the Deep South would be a different one. And then the Northeast and then like California would be its own thing. Yeah. And I talked about, well, is that is that moral? Would like some of the p- countries be incredibly poorer than the other ones? Mm. And how would certain, like, let's say racial minorities in the South, how would they fare? Is that that fair to break up a country that everyone thought had a had a social contract together? Mm. So anyway. You pose those questions to the people who have these ideas? Yeah. I think when you push people on those things, it helps elicit, why did you come to that opinion, mm-hmm. right? What's going on in America that made you think that? And a lot of it was, he said, well, I don't have anything in common with these people from these other regions, so why should I be forced to kind of deal with their problems in an America that has become so big and so so unwieldy? I feel like their their problems are causing me problems. So it was kind of, it was basically a, a conversation on, on one level about political polarization, right? The, the idea that people from different regions in the country have vastly different political views and they think they have vastly different lives, even if they don't necessarily day to day, they see themselves as very different. And yeah. I think that that's kind of an illustrative point about what's happening in America right now. Mm-hmm. One piece I read of yours that I really enjoyed was A Tale of Two Suburbs. Mm-hmm. And it's a story about your hometown. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that piece? And I think it kind of, I'll let you tell it, but I think it kind of informs a little bit to the current state of politics within the Democratic Party. And maybe we can get into a conversation about the primary. Yeah, for sure. So A Tale of Two Suburbs is, it's a story about two suburbs in Cleveland. One, Shaker Heights, which is where I grew up. And the other is Parma, Ohio, which is on the other side of the Cuyahoga River. And Shaker is a was not always, but is today a very racially mixed city. Mm-hmm. It has voted Democratic for probably the last 40 years, including for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Parma is on the other side of the city. It's a pretty white, homogenous community, but also was a Democratic uh, voting city mm-hmm. up until 2016 when it flipped for Donald Trump. And I kind of wanted to explore, you know, we talked earlier in the conversation about those white non-college educated voters and what was going on. And I kind of wanted to explore the splits in education among white people. And more than education, I wanted to explore the splits of class between white people, because I think that that's a thing we don't talk about a lot in American life, but it's really huge. And I chose Parma because... um, you know, Shaker has this reputation for being a progressive city that um, in the 40s and 50s and 60s um, began to kind of like at that point integrate the city. Jewish people moved into the city. Eventually black people moved into the city. Its public schools kind of became somewhat controversially racially mixed earlier than a lot of places. And that sort of um, has led to what I think we would now call like a woke white demographic <laughs> of people. Okay. okay. Yeah. And then the other side of the river is Parma, and Parma um, has a really uh, strong Polish and sort of Slovenian um, flow of people. So a lot of people moved from uh, Cleveland, which is only a, the city of Cleveland, which is only a 10-minute drive away, to Parma because a lot of their churches were there. In fact, hmm. their graveyard was there, like the Polish church's graveyard was in Parma. Okay. So that's one of the reasons why people moved is that they would always drive on the highway to this like very pretty yeah. place when they went to a funeral and and they said well let's just make a town here let's make a bigger town so anyway parma is um a more homogenous uh you know racial makeup of a town 
And it because a lot of people are of the same religion, of the same race, it and often they were working in the same um, factories in Cleveland. It was it was it tended to have people with less education, but people from this like even the same place in Europe. Hmm. And it developed this reputation in Cleveland for being very hostile to outsiders. So it was sued a couple of times throughout the course of its history for racial discrimination. And so that was kind of its reputation within Cleveland. And so when I was thinking in the aftermath of the 2016 election, for whatever reason, I kept on thinking about Parma. Because when I was younger, Parma, I mean, I didn't know that Parma voted Democratic, but I knew that people from Parma were different because people would say, and I'm not proud of this, but people would say, "Mm, she dresses kind of Parma Hmm. or she has Parma hair. Or like, that's a Parma purse. And what did that mean? I mean, it was honestly our stand-in for saying like, no, they're kind of trashy. Okay. And looking back, I was like, oh, it's weird that even as a really young person, I kind of like, there was like a tribalism, right? I like knew Parma people weren't like the people I grew up with. And I kind of wanted to write about that because I sort of think that's what the 2016 election was about, is that people were, people sort of sniffed out like, okay, I voted Democratic the whole time, but like, are they my people? And I think people in Parma sort of decided, well, Hillary Clinton isn't my people. And I and I and I sort of use that like my own sense of my hometown of Cleveland and the you know, the literal divides of the Parma's on the west side of the river, Shakers on the east side of the river, mm-hmm. um, the way that people where people choose to live as, you know, for certain ethnicities, for certain religions, how they choose to keep other people out. So all these, the politics of of suburbia and the way that black people were kept out of certain cities and and still are, and the way that shaped the politics of, you know, Cleveland as a city and now eventually, right, the United States. And so it's basically a story about suburbs and how the history of suburbs and the way and their racial politics, the way they kind of shape the people's politics who live in those suburbs um, and how those have shaped national elections. But the basic thrust of the piece is kind of what I was sort of trying to get at is I think we inherit our politics a lot from our families and from our parents and from the places that we live. You know, if you guys hadn't come to to college in Madison, you wouldn't have had certain life experiences. You wouldn't have met certain people and maybe you'd have completely different political points of view. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was it was a piece that was trying to talk about these things don't just happen in a vacuum. They happen because of decades of history. Um, And so that was kind of the point of the piece was sort of trying to think through What's been happening in America, not just over the last four years or the last eight years, 10 years when Obama was in office, what's been happening for decades with the way that America has been racially segregated and segregated by class. And that's kind of what the the piece is about, or at least tries to get into. And it does, there is a kind of undertone of a lot of the Parma, you know, the sort of Parma Democrats, those people who, okay, yeah, I'm still a Democrat, but I voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. They'll kind of say and I've heard this in in Wisconsin this week, listen, Joe Biden's the only Democrat who can win here, right? There's a certain demographic of people, and you also frankly hear black people in Ohio say it, right? And and I should point out, Joe Biden is leading with black voters quite strongly overall. And it's this idea of if places like Wisconsin and Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania, which have a lot of those non-college educated white voters, if those are the states that determine the election, should we should we think strategically and as you know as a democratic voter should you vote for the candidate that appeals to just those people i think that's where you get into mm-hmm. the kind of interesting debate of 2020 where a lot of democrats will say hell no i think those people are racist right and it becomes this very contentious conversation so 
that was it was kind of a little bit of a prelude to getting into the full 2020 coverage to just yeah. trying to think through some mm-hmm. of the stuff that's that's happening and that we're seeing yeah totally have you had a chance to talk to a lot of people about the primary here in Wisconsin you said you talked to someone I've been it's been a really busy four days yeah. I mean I it's it's great in some sense like I'm I, I will say I, I slept like a baby last night <laughs> but no I I think that I, yeah I've, I've talked to quite a few people about what direction they think Wisconsin will go what effect they think impeachment could have on the election you know could it be like could it engender sympathy for Trump? Will it be bad for Trump? Those are things mm. I think a lot of people are still thinking through. But yeah, I think I do feel I do I do hear a lot of sort of um, maybe not enthusiasm for Joe Biden so much as what I would call like that strategic thing of people saying, "Well, I want to vote for Elizabeth Warren, but I don't know yeah. if she'll win." Almost yeah. pragmatic, yeah. Yeah, pragmatic, and it, and we've you know I did a I did a talk earlier this week about the concept of electability, right? What does that mean? What is it a euphemism for? Mm-hmm. And I think kind of casually and colloquially when you you know turn on cable TV and someone's talking about electability, I think it does end up often meaning who will appeal to white upper Midwestern voters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, it's a, I think it's a valid logical conversation, but then you also have to say, well, um, Clinton didn't turn out, didn't enthuse black voters in Wisconsin and Michigan also. So uh, we got to make sure that the candidate, you know, appeals to, to those people too. So there's just an interesting, I think, really interesting conversation happening in the Democratic Party right now, in part because no one seems to be completely enthusiastic about anyone. Yeah. And there are so many choices that it's, it's, um, it's the paradox of choice, right? There's yeah. so much stuff and you can't really get the, I don't I don't necessarily see people that many people being gung-ho about their choices. Yeah, I don't I don't I feel like there's less like from 2016 where there was very much like I guess like one I guess not clear winner, but like here it's just like so like overwhelming like it's yeah. the midterm or the primary is happening in 5 6 months. Yeah. And I think before in in previous primaries there's actually this political science theory called the party decides and people felt less overwhelmed because frankly their choices had kind of already been made yeah. for them yeah. the the field had been winnowed down and even though bernie sanders really kind of he he caught fire right he really got a lot of attention he was never numerically if you look at like the delegate counts he was never in danger of really overtaking clinton mm. yes yes she was always a bit of like a she was inevitable on some yes, level that's, yeah that's what i kind of mean like yeah she always seemed like and you're right in thinking exactly gonna... and this time around it's very different it, there's no one necessarily who's inevitable joe biden is you know we're sitting here on october 3rd right yeah. and joe biden is currently the leader but I wouldn't be surprised in two months if he weren't, you yeah. know, you never know. So it's kind of a, I mean, it's, it's been really interesting for someone like me to just any, any time in New York and Wisconsin, whatever, everyone wants to talk about it. And I yeah. think that's, yeah. I actually think that's a new thing in America is how pervasive politics is in, in pop culture and everywhere. Oh, totally. So when you're talking about to the primary and they're not being as clear of a choice this time around. It made me also think about our conversation about polling mm-hmm. and how maybe that will become more important in this election cycle. Yeah. I mean, yes, I think polling is more important. And I think the rule of thumb for primary polling is look at state polls first. Mm-hmm. So so on our website right now, we have 
um, you can go and we have here are the Iowa polls, here are the New Hampshire polls, here are the Nevada polls, here are the South Carolina polls. Those are the first states in the primary. And those, I think, are the polls that are important to pay attention to because in the Democratic primary, the order that the states come in on the calendar matters, right? Because okay. like you saw when, when Trump won a couple of states in a row, mm-hmm. surprisingly to some people, right? Republican Party voters started to say to me, well, I don't know. I think I'm going to vote for Trump. He seems like he can win. Yeah. Right. The the essence of winner kind of was <laughs> prevalent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's take let's take the first three states in the Democratic Party party primary. Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. I think South Carolina before Nevada. I'm going to use it for this purposes. <laughs> in Iowa, New Hampshire, Elizabeth Warren has a has a lead over Joe Biden. Joe Biden team campaign has, in fact, said, uh, we don't need to win Iowa in order to win the primary. So he's nervous about Elizabeth Warren there. Why is Elizabeth Warren doing well in those states? Well, they're filled with white, college-educated liberal voters that she does very well with. And she's from Massachusetts, which neighbors New Hampshire. That's pretty good for Elizabeth Warren, potentially winning the first two states on the calendar. But Joe Biden is really excited about South Carolina because it has a two-thirds, two-thirds of its electorate is black. Joe Biden's doing really well with black voters. Elizabeth Warren, less so. So Joe Biden could win South Carolina and then win a bunch of states in the South and he could do really well. But I pay less attention to South Carolina polls right now because I'm pretty sure they're going to be affected by the results in Iowa and New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. I can't say for sure. Maybe voters won't be swayed. But you can go back and look at Barack Obama. And he wasn't doing that well in polls in South Carolina, which I think maybe surprises some people because he was the first you know, really viable black candidate in a while. But he proved to black voters in South Carolina that he could win white voters in Iowa. And that really swung his polls there. So polls right now in the primary are a little bit weird for a few reasons. One of them is tons and tons and tons of candidates and tons and tons of stuff happening in the news. But I would say if people are looking to be smart consumers of news, yes, look at the national polls. I do think that gives you some sense of things. But keep an eye on Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, particularly as January and February starts to happen. And that's when all the primaries are, are coming because those states will give you that's kind of that's the smart way to read the polls is to say, OK, but what's going to happen first and who's going to yeah. and what's the narrative going to be? Because whether we like it or not, people like to people are people are encouraged by seeing a winner. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. OK, one last question for you. How is the Ukraine impeachment scenario different than the Mueller impeachment scenario? And like, how's that going to affect primaries and elections and everything? Yeah. So 538 plug here. We've been watching the impeachment polls. And so we just launched an impeachment tracker that shows how the American public feels about the situation. What I would say is, so most Americans weren't in favor of impeachment in the context of the Mueller report, in part because I think the Mueller report was kind of hard to parse through for people. And impeachment is actually that people refer to it as like a political process rather than a criminal process. And what that means is you don't necessarily have to have committed a crime so much as um, the definition of the Constitution is high crimes and misdemeanors, but no one knows what that means. Mm -hmm. There's no real statutory definition. So it basically ends up being, can you convince people that the president did something wrong? And I think the Ukraine situation might be a little different because there is a whistleblower And there is a memo that the White House released that basically has the president 
pressuring a foreign country to interfere in the election to sort of look for dirt on his political opponent. And then there was a White House cover-up or attempted cover-up of that call. So those are pretty graspable things. For, and I should mention that the call happened the day after Mueller testified before Congress, right. which the president mentions on the, on the phone call. I think that that, to, to, that is an easy, a more graspable abuse of power to people than the Mueller report was. And the Mueller report was, uh, was, uh, was it about those Russian spies? Did the Trump campaign know? What do we know for sure? Was there something criminal? What does collusion mean? Whereas with the Ukraine thing, people seem to be like, well, it doesn't sound good, does it? Mm -hmm. Right? And so, so I do think that that's why you're seeing a more immediate, I mean, I think um, there was a seven point change in Americans, you know, being more in favor of impeachment in the last, what, 10 days. Yeah. yeah. So that's significant. I think the real X factor is how does it play out? There's 13 months until the election. That's a long time. Joe Biden is, unfortunately for him, kind of tangential or centric, however you want to say, to this. If he's the Democratic nominee, does that hurt him? Does that hurt his chances in the primary and therefore hurt the Democrats' chance, the Democrats' chance in the general election? I don't know. But... To go back to the impeachment thing, I think a lot of how impeachment gets determined, the support for impeachment, would you know, Democrat, it, just because they've opened an impeachment inquiry doesn't mean that Democrats will necessarily vote to impeach Trump. A lot of Democrats are, you know, Democrats are holding on to the House of Representatives by a very thin edge. And so there are a lot of moderate Democrats that if the polling changes, if the sense of the public that, the, the, that maybe Trump didn't do something you should impeach him for, that changes. Maybe they won't impeach Trump, and, and who knows that'll that'll affect yeah. things. So it's this really, um, on the one hand, I think it's much more clear-cut to people about what happened. But on mm -hmm. the other hand, how does it play out in the media? How do Democrats spin it? How does Trump spin it? And how does that play out over the next few months? I have no idea how it's going to be. Yeah. And I yeah. and I've, I think I've learned <laughs> not to predict it because it's, <laughs> yeah. it's also... You never know what's going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess it's time to wrap it up. Thank you, Claire, so much. Thanks so much for, for having being, me. This was yeah. fun. Being I wish here. we could have you on every episode. I know, <laughs> I know. It was so insight. fun. We really appreciate you coming on and kind of showing us the ropes of podcasting. Um, but thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank you.